0: Welcome back to another episode of Just Another Bozo on the Bus. I want to welcome all of our Bozo listeners. I'm grateful and glad and excited to have our guest this week, Marty Massa. Um, Marty's going to tell us a little bit about her story today. And, uh, of course, we'll explore that and some other questions that we ask our guests when they come on. Um, So, Marty, what what a perfect moment to have you tell us one what makes you another bozo or just another bozo on the bus um and what what are the important parts of your story that you feel uh, will help our listeners along the way
1: um i think what makes me just another bozo on the bus mm-hmm. is um in life learning what my biggest issues were that led me to my addiction and to my recovery as well um, starting off when I was younger, I had a pretty normal childhood. Grew up in an LDS family. Um I have four siblings and we were all very close. Um Where are you in the mix? I am the youngest girl, so I'm the sorry, I'm the youngest girl and then I have my little brother and then I have three older sisters. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um I did find out a lot of my backstory was my little brother was adopted. And When did you find that out?
0: Did you know that right from the beginning?
1: Yes. I, um, yes. Because he was, I would have been, we're two years apart and we got him when he was 18 months old. Um, so I knew right away that, and what's kind of crazy about this is we were, my parents were thinking about adoption because they had a friend that asked them to do it. And my parents decided not to because they already had four kids. And then just one Sunday he showed up and never left. (laughs) And he had a lot of, um, he has attachment Disorder, I believe is what yeah, it's called. Yes. Um, So he was very um, rough to get along with. He only liked me and my oldest sister for a very long time. Like I used to have to get checked out of school to go help him with him and stuff. But I did learn...
0: He bonded with you early on then.
1: Yes, me and so him bonded attached. very well. And then my oldest sister. Like he wouldn't even let my mom or my dad <laughs> change his diaper or do anything with him. It was only me. And I'm only two years older than him. So I was like four and five when he was like you know two and three so Mm -hmm. we were it was hard for me to be that person for him because I really didn't understand at the time but he did he was very um a big part of my life of learning that I had that jealousy almost of him because I was the baby and I was always closest to my parents. And I didn't realize this until I got older, but like, I was super jealous of him because he got to be the boy that played football and I wanted to be that person. And like, I really struggled with that, being a tomboy and everything. And as I got older, I realized that that was like one of my big, um, what's the word I'm looking for, sorry. uh, that, Issues it, with li- like, the way I looked at myself, like I didn't feel like I was good enough because he, came into my life and like kind of took that spotlight if that makes sense and i really didn't look at it like that when i was younger
0: well but, and, you, and you also had to help take care of him so that changes the dynamic of you being the one that's being taken care of right yeah so if you're used to that <laughs> and not that you didn't want to you know help out because there's some acknowledgement and and validation that comes from from being the the bigger helpful sister too
1: oh and absolutely was and me and him were inseparable actually actually so like i said it was hard for me to see this as i got older that it was a big part of um, my insecurities as I got older because I was so close with him. Like, we were inseparable all through high school. Like, we did everything together. Um, But he was a um, troubled child, definitely hard to take care of. Um, My parents fought a lot about it because my dad's very black and white when it comes to raising. Like, you just do what he says. You don't talk back. And my brother's not like that at all. He does what he wants when he wants. So my mom thought at the time... She did the best of, with what she had. She sent my dad to California for ten years, and they stayed married. Everything, you know, re- they made it look like a good marriage. I like
0: I, I <laughs> like this. I I'd forgotten this part of the story, but I I like that mom sent dad away. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, what's my mom always uses the phrase? Um, I just won't give up on him. Right. I just won't give up on him. You yeah. know, because he had very um, his real parents were very. I don't know what the word is for that. They were rough people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not from a good place. And he, he already had a ton of issues at 18 months old. So my mom knew like nobody can give up on him. You know, she wants to make it right. So yeah, it is funny that she sent him away because (laughs) the reason she sent him away is because my dad wanted to send him to like a boy's ranch or some kind of military, you know, to get him on his way. But my mom was just like, you know, I won't give up. Yada, yada.
0: Which could have, um, Possibly increased the um, the problems, especially with attachment. Anything uh, regarding an attachment disorder. Um, if his parents were troubled and and struggled in life, um, he you know he probably had some avoidant or disorganized tendencies when it comes to attachment and. That, that can really make it, it difficult to then all of a sudden be put in a situation where the things that you've begun to become attached to that seem, uh, you know, secure um, are taken away. And then you're again put in a, a, a situation. A, a lot of parents don't know what to do, though, so they think of doing that and they think it's a good idea. But
1: It's funny you say that because now that my mom looks at it, and it's kind of funny because she's learned a lot from me after, after going through rehab and learning a lot of my own insecurities like she said, I thought I, at the time I was doing the best thing, but I actually probably did the worst thing because I made him, I enabled him. I let him know that there was no punishment because I've sent the punisher away, you know, to a different state. So my dad's not there to be the punisher. So.
0: And she didn't pick up on that. There was no one to pick up on um, the person that was holding someone responsible. You used the term punisher, but it's also accountable and responsible, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah um, and... Yeah, so now she says, you know, I wish I would have done that differently and, you know, but I I told her you did the best of what you had at the time and you thought you were doing what was right. You've never, you know, it was it's not like she had a a book on him and how to, you know, raise a kid that's a troubled kid from an adoption or whatever, but she did very well, I, I think with what she had. She also was raising five kids without a husband all under the age of 16. So that's a lot. Um That is a lot. Yeah, and I think now that I think about that as well as I've gotten older, um, A lot of the attention was on him. So as I've gotten older, I've realized that I kind of always got away with whatever I wanted to do and didn't have roles and stuff because he was always taking all of her attention and time. And I didn't know I resented that so much because I'm very close with my parents. So as I've gotten older, I realized I resented that he took so much time away from my parents with me Mm -hmm. um, because I would say out of all the kids I'm the closest with my parents Um, but I feel like I've worked through that for a number of reasons yes for a number of reasons (laughs) Um, but I feel like I have worked through that and in my recovery has been a huge part of like um, talking to my brother about those resentments and getting them out even though you know he just looked at me like okay you hated me when I was little you know kind of thing but like for me it helped me so much to like just get that off my chest that that really was an issue behind my addiction right um one of them at least
0: (laughs) one of the one of the things that drove
1: me to my addiction yeah
0: the need to self-medicate or at least the 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 idea that this was a developed as a your addiction uh, developed as a coping skill
1: yeah absolutely um yeah and then that was that was just part of it and then um like I said, all the attention was on him. So, when I was fifteen, I met a guy that was eighteen mm-hmm. in my high school, and so he was a senior when I was a sophomore. And he was from a troubled home as well. And my mom is that person that just takes care of everyone. So,
0: like, I, she likes the strays. Is that what she <laughs> <you're> does? <laughs> she's she you know she
1: picks them all up. And he came from a rough home, and so his senior year, he got kicked out of his house, and he was going to drop out of high school. And my mom was just like, I can't let him do that. And she loved him. He was, I mean, he was a good guy to me. Yes, he came from a troubled home, but he was a good guy. Um, So she let him move in with us. And if my dad was not, if my dad was home at the time, that would have never happened. Um, She thought it was a good time, a good thing to do at the time because she thought she was going to lose me. And she had all this attention on my little brother. And she felt like, okay, well, if... I don't let him move in. She's just gonna go anyways. So this way, I can keep an eye on her. You know, help him get through high school. And everything was good with him for a long time. I was with him all through my high school years, and then.
0: Were you living with with at, at home this whole time?
1: Yep. Yep. Um. Yeah. Well, my senior year, we bought a house together. So before we got married, we we had a house, and um, then my senior year when I was graduating, I got a full ride scholarship to Tennessee for softball. And the guy I was dating at the time told me if I left that he wouldn't wait for me. And of course, me being young and naive, I was like, Oh my God, I won't go. Like, I want to marry you. Like, you know, so I graduated high school and we got married.
0: You are my soulmate. Yeah, that's what I
1: thought it was. Well, I mean, he was my first like, actual real boyfriend. Like, First true, first true love. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah. and like I said, he treated me very well at the beginning. Like, I can't complain hardly at all. Like, he was very good to my, my family, to me. You know, was very helpful with my little brother even. Like, you know, with my whole family. Anything anybody asked, he would be there to help. And just a good guy all around. Then we got married the August, um, August after I graduated my senior year. And started drinking a lot. And became physically and mentally abusive, and I was kind of in Are that you
0: 18 by this time, about? Somewhere? Yeah, I was almost
1: 19 almost at this 19. time, yeah, okay. yeah, I was married and divorced at 19, <laughs> so yeah, 19. <laughs> um, we weren't even married six months, and we'd been together almost, what, at that time, like five years almost, so really? I was thinking I knew this person, right, like, so we get married, and not even a week into our marriage, he just starts drinking and gets crazy and like mentally... He not
0: drank before at all?
1: I mean, he had drank a couple times in high school, like we, you know, we'd go to parties and stuff, but sure. he wasn't, I wouldn't say he was somebody that would drink every day or whatever, but mm-hmm. you know, every other weekend he'd go out to the bar cause he was older than me and I didn't want to take that away from him. So I told him like, go, just call me if you need a ride. And, and I couldn't go cause I wasn't old enough. So, you know, he never had like, I felt like an issue with it, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't know, like that week into our marriage, he just became very, very angry, very crazy um, so I told him, like, I don't know, like, why couldn't you have done this before we got married? Like, we spent all this money to get married, and now you don't love me? Or I couldn't tell what was going on at the time. I was very naive at the time. And so he tells me, well, I just need to quit drinking, and, you know, this is, like, a couple months in. And so we decided to move to Ontario, Oregon, which is this tiny little town, tiny little town. All it is is an onion farm and a prison, and that's it, <laughs> In a Walmart. <laughs> why
0: Ontario, Oregon?
1: Because he has an older sister who was very LDS and he felt like if we moved out there he wouldn't be around his friends okay. which at the time I didn't realize that he had gone to one year of middle school there so he did have friends out there but I didn't know that at the time so we had dropped everything tried to sell our house we moved out there with his, sis- with his sister and I had gotten a job within like the first two three days we were there and he wasn't trying I was working at a gas station pumping gas for like six dollars an hour and i'll never forget this because it was the day before valentine's and he came and picked me up because we only had one car out there and he was drunker than drunk and he picked me up drove me home scarily being drunk and driving and then beat the living crap out of me there Mm -hmm. and the next morning his sister found me and she obviously lost his mind on him and she said to him at the time i need you to tell her and i was like tell me what and this is Valentine's Day. <laughs> and he's like, I cheated Today's
0: Valentine's me. Day, by the way. How apropos.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, he gave me a card and chocolates and then told me, I cheated on you. And that, I really didn't care about the cheating. I had been trying to kind of find a way to get away from the abuse. And...
0: That gave you an opening?
1: It did. Because his sister was like, I don't blame you for leaving. She gave me $20 to put in my gas tank. And I drove home and acted like nothing happened. And I realized that at the time, because I didn't hold myself accountable for those things that I was going through, that I just started downward spiraling from there. Because before then, I had never, I drank like a handful of times. Sure. I'd never smoked pot. I was super scared because my brother did all that in high school, that he was going to die from smoking pot mm-hmm. or drinking. So I never did any of that. And softball was my world, so, or sports at least. So I never got into like any drugs or alcohol really in, just, in high school. So <laughs> I noticed that was kind of my big breaking point is when I started going... I don't know if I'd say downhill, but down downward spiraling. Um, I started drinking a lot, partying with friends. You know, went back to my high school days, even though I was out of high school. And um, I just started, you know, partying all the time. I really hadn't.
0: Did you looking back now? What I mean? What are your thoughts about that sort of course change or reversal um, into behavior that maybe wasn't? you know, normal for you at the, you know, up to this point, did, did you, did, did you have any type of awareness that you were acting out at this point or not?
1: I feel like I probably did, but at the time I was trying to avoid it all because <laughs> the people that do know me, I do not like to cry and I do not like to show my emotions or talk about them at all, which has been a huge part of my, um, addiction and recovery based <laughs> As well, um, well, true. Because I've known you
0: for uh, two or three years now, and uh, I've seen all types <laughs> of emotional responses from you, so I, I, I get it.
1: Okay. Yeah, and I'm working on that still to this day because it's a huge part of my recovery. But, um, yeah, at that time, I didn't want anyone to know that I was hurt or that I had failed because that's at the time I felt like I had failed. I was only 19 years old. I was divorced. You know, I had nothing at this time because I gave him everything. I just didn't want to see him again. So, like. I felt really down on myself. I didn't feel like I was good enough. And growing up in an LDS home, I was... In my head, I thought, you know, you're only supposed to be with one person. So, I felt like I was broken. I felt like, well, who's going to want me now? Like, I'm... You know, I've already been with my one person. And that was what I was told my whole life growing up. So, I just thought, you know, I don't don't have anywhere to go at this point. Like, I feel like... So, I feel like I was aware that I was acting out, but I didn't care at that time, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I was super okay with acting out because I just didn't care. And my mom was busy and, you know, she, I think she could tell that I was avoiding the situation. But like I said, at the time she had her hands full. So it kind of just went off the wayside. Um, so after the partying days, I, um, one Christmas I got my appendix out mm. <laughs> and I had been healthier than healthy my whole life. Never. I, I mean, I hardly ever even took ibuprofen. <laughs> and I got my appendix out, and it was supposed to be a day-in, day-out day in, day surgery. Um, I ended up being in the hospital for 14 days. Um, they caused internal bleeding and liquid in my lungs, which caused... I was born with something called alpha-1 trypsine deficiency. It's a lung disease. Um, when the liquid got into my lungs, it's what activated it. Because mm-hmm. I guess you can have... It, but not ever have symptoms is what the way they explained. it was it. dormant. Yeah, it was dormant the whole time. I couldn't yeah. think of the word. That's yes. okay. Yeah. Um, um, so when they caused that, I was in the hospital fourteen days on morphine, and like I said before this, I've never even took much ibuprofen, so I didn't know when they sent me home that I was gonna withdraw because they didn't send me home on any kind of pain meds or anything. And the first guy I dated after my divorce had kind of dabbled in drugs in high school, and. You know, I started doing the whole withdrawal symptoms, and I didn't know what was wrong. And I kept telling him, like, the boyfriend at the time, I I said, I think I'm still sick. I think there's still something wrong with me, like, Mm -hmm. inside. I'm like, I'm cold. I feel like I have the flu. Well,
0: you never experienced withdrawal. Never. And I've never seen anybody else.
1: I've never seen anybody else withdraw from him either. So, and he said, and he turned to me, and he said, you're withdrawing. And I said, what do you mean? Like, I don't do drugs. Like, I knew the word, but I, and he's like, no, like. You were just on a morphine drip for 14 days. Your body is, like, hating itself right now. And so, of course, he said, I can fix it. Started using Oxycontin for a little bit, and then we couldn't get that, and then that's when I really started going downhill was I got on the heroin, and I was hooked, and I tried getting clean a couple times, but like I said, a big part of that for me... Um like to get clean at the beginning is I didn't want to face my emotions about once again, now I felt like a failure and it wasn't good enough. Cause now not only am I 19 and divorced, now I'm a drug addict. And that to me growing up in the LDS church is a big no, no, like mm. you're not allowed to be a drug addict. Like that's not okay. You know, so <laughs> you're I
0: checking off the no, no boxes. <laughs>
1: yeah. I would definitely was feeling very, uh, down on myself. And I just felt like I was worthless and, you know, really struggling And then my first time getting clean, I went to rehab, obviously, and I just white knuckled it for almost four years. But I didn't deal with my emotions. I didn't hold myself accountable. I just found something to take up the time so I could get through my days. Mm -hmm. I just worked and went to the gym every day. And I was miserable for three years Mm -hmm. because I wasn't facing those things behind what was really causing it. Because back then for me, I felt like rehab was about the drug, and I have learned recently that it's not. It's the it, That's just a symptom of the things you have going on in your life. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah, so I was clean for the three years or whatever, and then I relapsed because they finally figured out what my alpha-1 was. Because, oh, sorry, I'll go back a little bit. So when I got the liquid in my lungs and I caused the... They caused the alpha-1 trypsine. They didn't know what that was at the time. So I had all these lung issues, and I was really struggling, like... Oh,
0: they hadn't done a, a full diagnosis yet? No, no, no. So oh. they had got
1: the liquid in my lungs, and I was just super sick for... Okay. I'm sorry, I had to go back for that. No, that's oh. all right. That's all right. So I was just super sick for probably those... Almost all four years um, after I got clean the first time. And then I started using it again because I was getting sick of not feeling good. Mm-hmm. And they hadn't figured out what was wrong. And... Um, I finally got into a specialist, and they told me I had this lung disease. And, of course, I was a victim to that and was like, you know what? Like, oh, I have a lung disease, and it's going to kill me eventually because the way they explained it to me then was you have this lung disease. If it's in full um, progression, I think that's the word they used. Like, if it goes full-blown term, you could die in seven years, (laughs) you know? And I'm, at this time, like... 24 Mm -hmm. you know and i'm like or 25 ish Mm -hmm. and i'm like wait i'm gonna die in seven years you can't tell me that like what do you mean i feel healthy i just don't feel well like I, what are you telling me so of course i took that once again to the victim stance of well if i'm gonna die i might as well use anyways
0: yeah you know what's the point yeah
1: i I mean and then you've got people that don't think before they talk and of course i I mean i would use too i mean don't when people say that to me it just blows my mind because i'm sitting here like would you really say that to someone? <laughs> you know, like doctors, people just it just blows my mind, but so finally I get into a specialist and they tell me what I've got and so I, you know, like I said, I went into victim stance over that and used that for a very long time and I got really good at manipulating people to feel bad for me, you know. Well, I'm going to die, so it's okay what I'm doing. And and I almost I think I almost got to the point where I I believed I mal- manipulated myself enough to believe it like I, that it's would okay. be
0: normal though that would be normal took you the narrative you re- if you repeat something over so many times right it just becomes part of our story and then we forget sometimes what's real and what's not
1: oh absolutely like, and I was at that point for a long time like I just kept telling myself like we, you know if other people think it's they feel bad for me I should feel bad for myself too and I was just so stuck in the stuck in this victim mode of, my life's so hard, and, you know, they're going to take away everything I love to do, because I love to play sports, I love to be outdoors, you know, and I just went into this full, like, once again, I'm not good enough, just going back to when I was younger, and it just really put me in a bad place, like, you know, and then I went into full-blown using again, and um, then, of course...
0: And you're using primarily heroin and at this point yeah
1: that's about it i mean other than that i really haven't used anything else i think i used coke like a handful of times but yeah heroin's pretty much been my only drug and oxycontin was what started that sure. all but yeah other than that I, I mean i haven't even smoked pot so <laughs> those are i don't know how i went straight to that but that that's what well, my well, story you know, is i
0: think you actually I think, I think you do know because you went into the hospital on a on a 14 day um methadone d- drip you know and so
1: yeah morphine yeah it was yeah, morphine,
0: sorry morphine no, drip, and so um of course you're going to uh, you know that that's how you get right to heroin because that's what heroin is you <laughs> yeah <know? laughs> just straight
1: opiates <laughs> yeah. yeah um oh so back to yeah so then um i was in that victim stance about you know them telling me i have this lung disease and i'm gonna die from it and you know and um so I go to rehab again for my second time, and I feel like I'm on top of the world. You know, once you start getting clean, you start feeling good. And mm-hmm. then I get sick again, and they can't figure out what's wrong with me again. And then I get diagnosed with cervical cancer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and once again, I just went straight back into that story. I told myself that, you know, I'm not good enough, and I need to use... I'm, I mean, I'm a victim to my health. My health is taking over my life I have to use because I'm sick and which is absolutely not true, but it's the story. Like you were saying, like it's the story I told myself over and over. And even when I would get ahead of it just a little bit, one more thing would pile on. And then I thought, well, this is too hard, which once again, nothing's too hard. But in my head, my story was, this is too hard. Now I've got a lung disease. I have cervical cancer, you know, this and this, and it couldn't just be a simple one. It's some rare cancer, of course, Cause I'm that (laughs) one percenter and it was something that like, I couldn't just take a pill for or get froze off. Like I had to go in and get surgery and then they're telling me I can't have kids. So then once again, there's my story. I tell myself, I'm not good enough. Now I can't have kids. Like who's going to want to be with me? And I just went through this over, you know, a 10 year period. And it just, it got to a point where I just turned to my mom one day and I said, when am I going to feel like I'm good enough?
0: What a great question.
1: Right? What a great question. And my mom just looked at me with like a blank stare. And of course, she just turned to me and said, are you using? (laughs) You know, and I was like, I'm glad that's what you got out of this. But, you know, yes, I am. But And it got me into a good place because then I um, got into treatment for my, uh, you know, third and fourth time. And that's when I started learning that the drug was not my issue. This is when I really started learning that I was telling myself a story that was not true And that I was using this illnesses as, as a crutch, like, you know, and having people feel bad for me. And I really didn't look at it that way growing up. And it's just crazy once you actually hold yourself accountable to those things and you don't become a victim to it and that you can actually turn around your whole life by just the way you talk to yourself, Mm -hmm. the way you talk to others, how you hold yourself accountable. Um. And that was, like, a huge part of my recovery. And don't get me wrong. Yeah, I have, I've, I've had a couple slip-ups since then. But I'm still learning, like I said. Like, a huge thing for me is, like, dealing with my emotions correctly. Like, when I'm feeling sad, it's okay to be sad. I don't, I don't do it all the time. But I know I should because holding yourself accountable to however you're feeling. Joy, happiness, sadness, mad, or anger, whatever. Like, if you can actually talk about those things in the way you feel... You can get so much joy out of just that like even if it is sadness like I get joy out of being able to go to someone and say you know what I'm feeling kind of sad today I don't feel great you know and I I've never been able to do that in the last 15 years sure and so I didn't realize I wasn't doing it and
0: it, being being vulnerable oh yeah I mean letting people actually in and see Oh, I use that term, the soft underside of our belly kind of thing, but <laughs> that, you know, that is kind of what it's like is no, allowing absolutely. people to see that, you know, and 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 be okay with it. It may be uncomfortable to do it, but the growth that comes out of it um, is exponential in the sense that it ke- can, we can grow from there. We can build upon that um, and also create, you know, more deeper, meaningful relationships in, in many different aspects of our lives.
1: Oh, absolutely. So. Yeah and like i said just that growth you get from it and like i said i'm still even working on it to this day even though i am in a good place at the moment like i'm still you know i still go to therapy and i still work on those things like being okay with telling being vulnerable because like i said then i learned once i learned that i was a victim to my health then i learned how much i hated when people actually did pity me you know but then i also Realized that I had trained people to pity me and I had to learn how to talk to people if they were curious about what was going on in my life with my illnesses and all that stuff that I could be vulnerable about it and be okay talking about it and saying it in a way that I'm not making them pity me, if that makes sense. Like I, it's all about how I talk about it and how I present it to someone that's how they're going to react. Like if I don't make it such a horrible thing, then they're not going to make it such a horrible thing. Right. But I didn't realize I was training people to pity me yeah. and I hated being pitied. Yeah. It,
0: <laughs> that You, it, you st- decided you had to stop um, teaching people to feel a certain way about you and give you permission um, to, you know, tell one the story right that, that something's wrong with me and you know I, i'm never gonna be you know all i can be kind of thing and i'm never gonna have these things and which is just again a, a whole nother story but we look at ourselves in our situations and there's, there's a lot of strength comes out of this this shift from the victim narrative one of you know uh you know this is all happening um, to me, and that—that that this is that basic term, right, instead of for me. And, and that's, that's an uncomfortable turn to make because th- we get things out of creating a, a sense of victimization and pity from people. Um, you know, they feel sorry for us. And the actual truth of that, I mean, there are places where, you know, it, it, practicing empathy can be one of the most powerful experiences that we have in the way we connect to people and we can have sympathy for people if they're having a struggling and having a hard time but as the payoff for that that we get something out of it which perpetuates a story about ourselves which ends up actually keeping us sick yeah instead of allowing us to move on
1: and i've had to learn the difference between having sympathy for people and pitying people like i didn't realize how big of a difference there is and like i said when i've trained people for so long and manipulated them to feel bad for me i had to really learn about how to retrain them that it's okay. You can sympathize because, yeah, I may be going through some hard things, but there's a way to do it without pitying me and making me feel less of myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I'm going to go back just a little bit because I forgot about this, but, like, another victim stance I had is, um, you know, I was going on two and a half years clean and living life and feeling so good. And um, I had to go do some tests um, because some of my levels were crazy and i had a doctor tell me i had one level that was super crazy high it's my prolactin level and he turned to me and says you have a brain tumor we need to get surgery asap he doesn't say we maybe have a brain tumor we need to go get this checked. so of course is in this my just head- from
0: the the blood levels i mean the the blood draw yep he'd taken
1: mm-hmm.
0: so with with no imaging done you know cat scans mris those kinds of things he just
1: yeah, and he well because he, cause he said statement. the number was just not it couldn't have been anything else is what he told me. <laughs> this prolactin level, there's nothing else it could have been, and it was me being such a victim to my health, of course I started panicking. Uh, and an this was ab- a couple an of-
0: absolute someone who thinks in black and white and very concrete. You you had experience with that, of course, in your Absolutely. life. Absolutely. So having I mean, I, I know I'm doing that was a big loop back to your dad, but <laughs> <laughs> but, but for the other side of that is. You know, if you're used to hearing it, right? You kind of your brain adjusts to it, and if you've already used to hearing, this is another part of how we train and teach ourselves. I, I'm almost used to hearing bad news, right?
1: Always. Oh, so it's yeah. like,
0: okay, I got a brain tumor. W- what happens from there? What?
1: Yeah. So it's so at this time, like I said, I and um, at this time, I'm just looking at my life, like. How can I go from being so up here to so down here in two seconds? Like, I didn't even give myself a chance to, like, hold myself accountable about how I was feeling or tell anybody. Like, I didn't even go tell my mom what happened. I just went out and used and ruined all my sobriety and did a month binger and then put myself back in rehab. Like, to me, it just blew my mind that I let something so little before I even knew what was going on and I let it literally just take down everything I had going on for me over just a couple words in a sentence because I, I went straight to being that victim. And like I said, I'd been working on that so hard, but I hadn't learned how to take that bad news still. I thought I did, and I thought I was in a good place. But, mm-hmm. like, hearing something like that to me was just like, okay, you know, I can't have anything else on my plate. Like I, And that's what I kept telling myself. And, you know, I put myself back in rehab, and I, I had, you know— I had gone to this rehab already, so people knew my story. And I decided to, you know, I just straight up told them, like, this is how I was feeling. And I don't know why I did it, you know. And I really had to, like, dig deep. And I I did know why I did it. I did it because I wanted to do it, because I felt bad for myself, because my life was so hard at the moment. Like, but it wasn't. I just didn't hold myself accountable. And I didn't go talk to someone about it like I know I need to. Mm -hmm. And I bundle all my emotions in. And like I said, still to this day, I'm still working on... Making sure that however I'm feeling at the time, whether it's with a person or with my illness or with whatever's going on, that I talk about it. Even if it's with myself, like I, my therapist even laughs and like says, you know, talk to your dog about it if you have to. Whatever's going to make you feel okay and get it out is what's going to help you, you know, succeed in what you're doing. W- whether it's addiction or recovery or whatever it is, you hmm. can succeed in what you're trying to get to as long as you can be vulnerable and get that out.
0: Yeah. I I wonder though knowing you the the little bit I do. <laughs> um if the statement you made a moment ago and maybe that I mean I think that's where you were at the at the time, you know, I threw all my sobriety away in that moment. Do you believe today that that's true that you threw all your also your sobriety way for that period (laughs) from going from being sober to then having you know a a relapse period and then back into sobriety
1: absolutely not because a lot
0: of people think that way right they they go I just threw everything out the window so why you know why go back you know kind of thing and it's like invalidating all the work that is done before and often creating you know that again, re re in, re inflaming those viral thoughts of I'm not enough, I can't do anything. You know the sort of that learned helplessness piece that might, I might as well just go fucking use because, um, you know, I can't do anything else kind of thing.
1: Yeah. So at the time, that's how I felt. But no, I as I've gotten older and farther in my recovery, mm-hmm. I realized that those relapses weren't that way to me now. Like, actually, if anything, they were more helpful to me because then I've learned more of how not to do those things. So, no, I don't feel like I threw everything out the window. At the time, I did. Because, you know, I was like... It'd been a while since I had two years of sobriety. So, to me, I thought, why did I just throw that all away? But really, I didn't because just because I had a slip-up does not make... I didn't throw everything away. I had a hiccup in what I was doing and I learned how to not have that hiccup, if that makes sense. Like, I had to really... It, all it did was further my recovery, if anything. Yeah. Like, just because those numbers aren't there anymore does not mean anything. All yeah. it meant for me was that that was something I hadn't done before that I needed to work on now that would help me go farther.
0: This is that important piece. I think such an important component of life in general is... Um, getting through moments that are very difficult or very uncomfortable and seeing this more as an opportunity to you know work through something and to show up for that and not it's like throwing the, the baby out with the bathwater kind of analogy where you know we be, that sense of feeling hopeless and helpless um and worthless can of, often become overpowering but the and understandable at that moment that's when we that's when we need to reach out the most. That's when we need to show up and connect with people so that we realize that we're you know, those moments and those events do not define who we are. Which is what I heard you I mean, I'm I'm packing this a little differently. No, absolutely. That's kinda of what I heard you yeah, say. No, that's
1: exactly what it is, just in better wording. <laughs> but yeah, like like you were oh. saying is dealing with uncomfortable moments. Um, I left this part out but I lost my boyfriend three years ago. It'll be three years ago in March, and I at that time I was in a good place as well. I had been clean, I don't know, a couple of years or so, and everything was going pretty well. And you know he was doing really well. And I walk in and I find him, you know, dead in my bathroom. And overdosed. I, I had never. No, he did not overdose.
0: Oh, he did not overdose. No, he died
1: from heart failure. Oh. Yeah, at 32 years old. I I should rephrase that. He was on steroids, so steroids is what killed him. He was born with a heart disease. And it sped up, and his heart was, like, three times the size it should have yeah. been.
0: He, well, he overdosed on steroids. Not
1: Yes, yeah. not—I'm sorry, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. technically, yes. <laughs> but um, but walking into that, and I just remembered not being okay reaching out because I was so uncomfortable because I'd never had had to deal with death or seeing it or being around it or, you know, especially someone I loved mm-hmm. and I lived with and, you know— Um, but you were talking about being uncomfortable. Like I said, like I was so uncomfortable to the point where I wouldn't reach out for help and I just buried it all down. And that is the worst thing I could have done at the time because I feel like I would have been okay if I would have just said, Hey, you know what? I am super uncomfortable. I don't like the way this feels. I don't know how to act. I don't know, but I didn't. I quit going to my therapist. I quit. I I quit it all because I didn't know what to do and I didn't like that feeling. Mm. And once again, like I said, I don't like to deal with my emotions and I didn't <laughs> want to cry in front of anybody. But but that is a sad thing. It's sad when you lose someone.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. Of I course, will say it's something something cool I did learn <laughs> is um, Todd had told me this. Um, you can always celebrate death. You don't always have to mourn it. Right. And to me, when he said that to me, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, what? Yeah. No, I don't want to celebrate that he's gone. And then, you know, he went into explaining it like in some countries they do, they celebrate, like they had a good life and they lived their life. And, (laughs) you know, and I try to look at it more like that now. And I feel like that's helped a ton. But like, just going back to how you're saying, like, I want to be okay being uncomfortable. Like, I I think that is a huge part of anything I do in life. Like my work, my recovery, my anything I do, like being uncomfortable is probably like the best place for me personally to be because I know that's where I'm gonna get all of my growth
0: from. I, I wanna ask you a question that's, this is gonna go way back. Okay. Something you said earlier, um, the, the conflict and, and, and you were feeling bad about yourself uh, when you came back from Oregon and you, you, know, you sort of had this experience of your life kind of beginning to spiral, I think is the, t- the term you used. Yes. And you also mentioned that um, I was a failure. You know this sense of failure that I—I'm um, not with the one, so to speak, this one mm-hmm. guy, this one relationship, um, because of your um, theological upbringing taught you that. Do you do you believe that today still, or is that
1: No, not at all. Um, I did for a long time, and it did take me a long time to be okay with not believing that. If that makes sense. Um, I'm not religious now but I like I said I, I still do believe in some things I I learned as I was growing up in the church or whatever but you know and and I I did believe that for so long that I just was not okay because you're only supposed to sleep with one person and mm-hmm. one person only and I felt like I was just like that disgusting thing to other men and that I just could would would never be good enough. Yeah. And now I look at that and I laugh because that is ridiculous. That is not true at all. That that it's not I don't care what religion or what sure. what what rules you go by when you grow as you're growing up, but like that is just crazy. That does not make you not good enough or good enough. It's just that was a part of my life that happened, and I it was out of my control at that point. Right. Yeah. And so I just roll with the punches at this point. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> well, there's there, any time a, a belief like that, and I think you've discussed this in in various ways. Um, to you know. To, to, Talking about your history and and your story, that um, a lot of things we learn to be able to adapt and adjust to, and and move away more from the absolute thinking, right? This concrete. Peace, which yeah. is you, you brought up was your father was strong in that sense. And there, there are a lot of people that think black and white. It's not necessarily bad, but it's often limiting and confining to be able to be adaptive and to grow and to take in new information. I, I, I like it from the Buddhist aspect. You know, a beginner's mind is open and, and able to be taught and learn new things, um, whereas an expert mind is, is fixed often in what they know and they stick with that and nothing else. And I, I, I always try to remember that cause I, I don't always have all the, all the answers and I don't always know these things. And I become, I mean, I work on this cause I, it's, it's not about disrespecting someone else's beliefs as someone else's belief, but also being able to ask for the same respect for my belief from someone who has a different belief. Um, which this would really change a lot of our, you know, interactions right now as a, as a, you know, in humanity. If we could respect each other's beliefs, we don't have to agree with them. But the idea that there's one person that I'm going to be with, um, there's just too many components of that which are really illogical and probably not possible, especially for a young child who maybe went through was molested or went through sexual abuse by a you know, a family member or something. I mean, that surely doesn't fit in very well. And th- that that kind of puts a hiccup, I guess, in someone's philosophy or theology that would say just one, right?
1: Yeah, and doesn't that like, um me personally, I've never had the like molestation or anything. But like I sit and think of a young girl or boy even. And then that that is their belief. You know, if they're raised in that church and a family member did that to them, that just blows my mind that it's so easy for someone to sit and think that, like, well, now I'm broken. Mm-hmm. And that kills me. Like, I, I I wish I could just help everyone by learning what I've learned, you know? Like, <laughs> no, that's not true. Like, you know, you life is what you make it, as I have learned. Like, you don't, even in what I believe now, my beliefs now, like... It doesn't always work out how I want it to, but it can work out how I tell myself I want it to. If that makes sense, sure. By telling me the, telling myself the story that I want to tell myself, and if I make sure that that's a good story, and I keep it that way, and I don't put all the negative beliefs and crazy things I tell myself, like I feel like that's where the more, uh, sorry, the most growth I've had.
0: You mentioned something also earlier. um, uh, You had mentioned uh, Todd, and you're speaking of Todd Sylvester, uh, who's been on this podcast a few times, two or three, I think. Um, He um, uses that that term about celebrating um, loss and death um that that be part of the mix and I f- I so agree with that and it's again it's not about one way or the other but it's learning how to hold the celebration and they talk about holding dich- a dichotomy at the same time and also being able to grieve mm-hmm. too in the same moment and that be okay it doesn't have to be one or the other and I I, I believe that each, bring us healing right because we know grief actually re- releases oxy- um, oxytocin into the brain and you know but by, by processing sadness and grief and loss we're in, in gra- and have gratitude for life that's part of the celebration too I'm grateful for this person in my life even though they're not here anymore I'm, I can experience gratitude that releases chemicals in the brain that help us process a lot of those emotions so that you know we can move on and and, and heal yeah. uh, mentally and emotionally. That always seems like something that, that, um, how it, it seems to come back to how important it is to find some balance, right? With, in, in, instead of thinking that there's just one way to go about things. So,
1: oh, absolutely. and we were
0: talking about that. We were, we, you know, you asked me about the Russell Brand book when we, before we started today and, and, um his recovery book and i said he has his own (laughs) version of the 12 steps um which by the way are are just awesome um i I won't read them all on on the air here but um i I, what i do like about the concept um and and i'm i'm not a 12-stepper but i i do appreciate um so the 12 steps from the the fellowship that it creates and the accountability that it creates um but uh This idea is uh, step one in his mind and how he worked through it was, you are a a bit fucked. (laughs) (laughs) These are good ones. These are good ones. Step two was, (laughs) could you not be fucked? (laughs) And step three, are are you on your own going to unfuck yourself?
1: (laughs) We'd all be great if we could all unfuck ourselves.
0: Yes, right. And... It would be great. But the truth is, is it, it does. I mean, a couple uh, a decade or two ago, it was, you know, it takes a village. But it, what that means is it takes a community, right? I mean, that, that there's as true as that was back then. Um, it's true today that it takes community and 12 step, it takes a fellowship. It, does, we, it doesn't happen alone. Mm-hmm. And this is not just about addiction. This is about life in general, that we do need a community. We do need a connection to, to move move forward. Um, otherwise, we often get stagnant when we isolate or separate ourselves from those, those connections. Um, uh, based upon growing up in the dogma you did um, with the LDS church, and um, I married into an LDS family and, and very grateful for it. Um, I'm I'm, the closest I come to, uh, as spiritually or religiously, would be more towards um, a Buddhist Native American slant in my life and my practices. Um, but I I do appreciate um, the value in the community that comes from, again, that can come from uh, the LDS faith. And, uh, yeah, I say LDS and whatever. Um.
1: <laughs> well, and I struggled with that a lot. Um Because even though I was taught that growing up, I my mom was Mormon and my dad was Catholic, Mm -hmm. and nice mix. Yeah, it was rough. Well, back then they did not like my parents together. Like it was a big thing. Like they didn't want my mom. My mom had actually getting kicked out of BYU because she was dating my dad Mm. because he was Catholic, and it was just it's a crazy thing to me. But my dad just wanted us to be able to learn that there was something you can believe in. He wanted us to be able to be spiritual. And so he just said, I want all my kids to go to some kind of church until they're 15 and then they can decide. So like I said, I do take a lot of the beliefs from there and the connection, but then I had a bad experience with a bishop. So the first time I got out of rehab and I was newly divorced, I had a bishop tell me that he did not want me around the other girls and young women's because I was a bad example. So once again, he gave me a reason to tell myself that I was not good enough. Ah. So then I started really hating the church, mm-hmm. which was not right because there's always one bad apple or a couple, you know, and I shouldn't have let that take me down a road of hating the church for so long. Cause now I don't, and I don't, I'm not religious in that way. I don't go to church. I'm not active, but I do not hate the church anymore. But that did take a big part of me, like really hating the way he made me feel
0: you or know. how you felt or how I right, felt. Yeah. yeah. From You you hated the feelings uh, that you had about yourself based upon his what words. he said to you. Yeah, his exactly. words, his words, and his words carried weight still in your life. I mean, that would, he is, he is a spiritual leader, right? And so.
1: Yeah. And he just confirmed that story. I had been telling myself the years before that it was not good enough yeah. and that I, you know, but I really had to look at that and I didn't let it affect me any more than it should have because I can't control how people feel or their opinions. Like you said, like how you were talking earlier, like everyone can have an opinion, but you don't have to agree with what their opinion is, Right. you know, but you should have the respect and let them say what they want. But that was just my little part on the whole church thing. Cause to me, I <laughs> no that, <struggle. laughs> was, that was,
0: that was, that was, that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that where I was going with this question was, um, where, how do you connect spiritually in your life? What do you have today, if anything?
1: Um, that's a hard one for me because, like I said, I'm not active in any kind of religion, but I am spiritual of the way of, like, I pray. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I believe in God. I don't, okay. I'm not saying, like, I follow everything in the exact way I probably should. But, yeah, I definitely pray and.
0: Let's say you follow everything the way you are.
1: <laughs> well i'm just saying like i don't follow like a program like i don't right. sure all one yeah. religion i guess you yeah. would say like i said i believe in god and i pray and i more, more
0: eclectic
1: yes, yes. exactly yeah. sorry I, yeah yeah i just um that's really the only way i do i would say i'm spiritually connected in that way mm. um i know this is i don't know if this really counts but i do i've just learned to meditate we're talking we've been talking yes we talked aftercare. a lot about that yeah and i've just i've really struggled with that because i'm super like on the go all the time have to be doing something like so for me to have my brain just slow down and sit still for a long period of time has been very hard for me mm. my whole life but i've gotten better at it and i feel like for me it's kind of a spiritual feeling uh, because i am just slowing down and not thinking yes so i would say that in prayer and that's about it for me. On Being the present part. in
0: the moment. I yeah. agree with you wholeheartedly on this. Um, the, one of the focus um, for myself and, of course, in my practice, too, is this notion of, you know, how how do we live a more wholehearted life? And when I think of, you know, the spiritual practice and meditation, that is that's a way for me to connect with my experience of myself in the moment, hopefully without that narrative going, a, a particular narrative going. <coughs> it's more of a, a disconnection from the storyline, right? Which allows space to create a new storyline. Which is why I love meditation too. And I, I would be it would be it would be inaccurate to say that I, I meditate all the time. I don't. Um, I do my best to spend 15 minutes in the morning in in a state where I'm I'm practicing quiet and and, and consciousness as far as directing my attention to where I am. Um,
1: Mine's a bit like that as well. Yeah. Because <laughs> like I said, I, I, I do struggle just sitting still and being quiet. So I've, I really practice, like you were saying, like a couple minutes in the morning or at night, mostly at night because it helps me really fall asleep and be calm because I've got 95 things going through my head all the time. So for me, that's kind of my... So I shouldn't say meditate all the time, but yes, I'm with you on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, with, it, well, in life on, along these lines, what are the, what are the ways in which, you know, what things do you, um, seek out to experience joy and how, what, what brings you joy in life?
1: Joy for me is sports. Sports. I, sports and, and it's any sport. Um, like yesterday, I actually, in the snow and rain, I played in a fundraiser softball tournament to help one of our fellow, um, people in, in recovery, mm-hmm. um, he, he's losing his house and stuff. So we're trying to help his family. And we played in the snow all day yesterday. And any kind of Good sport like you. that for me is in that community. It's just, I get so much joy out of that. And, and it's, and I used to think it was the competition part, but I'm starting to learn. I think it's more just the being part, like just going out and being with people you enjoy being around and just, I don't know. It just, like yesterday, I was miserable because it was freezing and it was <laughs> snowing and raining and it was muddy. But by the end of the day, I just had had so much fun and we raised so much money for this person. And just wonderful. It makes you feel so good. So like that kind of stuff and service, service, servicers. Service. I, I will not lie. I used to hate doing stuff like that and i know that's a horrible word to say no, it's but i used not. to be it's afraid not. You're of you're being doing
0: honest it. you're being
1: i absolutely you're, you're being am. i used to be vulnerable. afraid of homeless people or anything like mm-hmm. that but because of recovery and this is one thing i'm so thankful for i try to do the food bank or make blankets for primary children at least once a month at least because i have never felt so much gratitude and i guess love than i do when i do service yeah and, I, and like I said I'm just being honest I used to be terrified of anything like that like going to a, a hospital where there were sick kids like that scared me like like I said homeless people scared me and now I literally will either feed them do food bank I do primary children's at least once a month I just make 5 or 10 blankets and take them up and for me that is like one of the biggest like fulfilling feelings if that makes sense like I don't know it just makes you feel so good inside to do service any yeah. kind
0: so i i'm gonna loop that back around something okay. else you were talking about if that's okay because i i because the same thing with the sports you what you mentioned was this connection and community of you know and i know the you know i i, I know this community that you you speak of and there's power in that right i mean that that sense of connection it it's it's uplifting and and i Honestly, believe that there's a spiritual aspect to that, as well as there is a spiritual aspect of doing service. And I don't want to go maybe as far as some people would maybe disagree with this, but I think the the idea of sitting down and t- creating the the space to make blankets or something like that um, can be a very meditative spiritual practice. To be honest with you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, and um, so. I know it wasn't, this is an indirect way of, round way of going about that, of explaining spirituality, but I'm just giving you feedback on what I'm hearing is that your spirituality includes, you know, connecting through these different ways in your life, um, through you know community activities, through um, being in service to others, um, through making things for other people. Um, there There's this underlying spiritual connection for you, one to yourself, but also to something outside of yourself.
1: Yeah, I absolutely see which that. Which is what I service
0: agree. is all about. Absolutely. Right? So anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I agree. It, it, I can see how that, yeah, I would say that is a huge spiritual part. I didn't look at it that way until you said that, And it's probably because I didn't think of it that way. But, yeah, definitely, like, when I'm making those blankets, I am not, I never feel so calm than I do when I'm making those blankets for those children. Like, it's its such a fulfilling thing for me. I love it.
0: Hmm. What do you do in your day job, Marty? (laughs) I know the answer.
1: (laughs) I own, with my family, I own the four Hot Dog on a Stick (laughs) drive-thrus. And we love it. It's fun. It's what more do you want to know about it? <laughs> I mean, and my mom does, speaking of service, we do a lot of stuff, um, especially because I'm her only kid in recovery. She does a lot of stuff for the recovery mm-hmm. community. Um, we go feed the houses for residential and IOP sometimes and all types of stuff. She's really into it now that she has a kid that's gone through it. Right. Um, both my parents were very arrogant when it came to recovery because they had never had to even though my brother was a handful it was like weed and mushrooms and you know they've never had someone with like with an actual addiction I guess so sure. now they're not like that they're very wanting to be a part of that so she tries to do a lot in that um yeah and we do lots of catering which we love as well we haven't been able to do it with COVID but
0: yeah, that changes some of the dynamics.
1: Yeah, and I love what I do. Um, like I said, I know they're just corn dogs, but I get to work with my two older <laughs> sisters and my mom, and my dad's just, our handyman. Just
0: <laughs> corn dogs. That sounds funny. There's some people out there that listen probably that, that, that corn dogs are an important part of their life. So it, uh, I'm you not. You would I'm, be
1: surprised. That it's a lot of people's important part of their lives. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. No. no <laughs> All no. my regulars. No,
0: no, 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 ju- no judgment here by by any means. Um, so one, one thing I did want to touch base with is, so your dad went away for 10 years and went away or moved to California. What, 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 what was it like when he came back?
1: It was a little odd actually. Um, cause he, I mean, when we say he lived away for 10 years, like he came home for Christmas, big holidays, yeah. not, not birthdays or anything, but big holidays. He was around, um, When he came home, it did get kind of weird because at that time I actually was married and he came in trying to be dad. uh, And I didn't really think it would have changed, but it did because they had their issues, obviously. Like it, it became very, there's a lot of tension like with everybody Mm -hmm. and you could tell and no one was addressing it. Like my mom and dad had tension, me and Mm -hmm. my dad had tension, which was super weird because I would say I'm by far the closest with my dad, like by far. Mm-hmm. And then my older sisters had all moved out and moved on with their lives and started having kids. And he just kind of came back in like, I'm here. And, you know, and my my parents had had their issues. So there was lots of fighting because uh, of my brother. Mm-hmm. Not to blame him, but that was a big uh, thing. Parents
0: argue over kids. I can tell you that being a parent, that that's not an uncommon thing. Oh, in fact, yeah. it's one of the most common things that parents fight about.
1: Oh, for sure. And especially with that one. (laughs) And it was odd. And it took me probably almost two years to get comfortable with him again, which is funny because I I talked to him almost every day on the phone. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like I said, he came home for holidays, but it was very, it was like having a weekend dad, you know, like he just came in when, but it also wasn't his choice. He did not want to be where he was. And... He just does what my mom told him to, and like I said, it was just—it was very—it was a very odd feeling. But I would say I would say almost all my siblings, other than my brother, my brother and my dad, do not have a relationship still to this day. They are better than they were, but still to this day, they just don't see eye to eye. They never will, and I don't expect them to. I mean, my dad loves my brother. My mm. brother loves my dad. Oh but yeah, I understand. What you're they ju- there's just never going to be that close connection, but yeah i would say everybody and within a two-year period got back to pretty much normal interesting yeah
0: huh.
1: and i it i find it very interesting because i hadn't been asked about it very much before this like maybe one or two other times mm-hmm. and i really never thought about how awkward it was when he came home
0: well you you that what was considered the norm and, and the new a uh, new homeostasis within the family system was all of a sudden changed you know back i mean it's not really going back i people say i want to it goes back to the way things were of course it didn't it went forward to something new um but that would be awkward
1: well and when he left we were kids and when he came home we were starting our adult lives yeah you know, like I was married at the time, and he was trying to be dad, and I'm like, I am married. <laughs> I'm an adult. Yeah,
0: right.
1: <laughs> you know, so it, it just, it was weird.
0: Confusing for him, I'm sure, too. Oh, absolutely. All of a sudden. I'm
1: sure it was more uncomfortable for him than any of us.
0: Sure. Because you guys had you guys had grown up all together and had gone through all those experiences. He, in some ways, was the odd man out.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, way to go, Dad, that you made it through all that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> for real, he's he's gone through a lot. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, goals for the future? What? What sort of? What? What? what
1: uh... For the future? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't. Well work wise we're trying to open at least one more store which I'm excited about and my work is a big deal in my life obviously
0: I'm trying <laughs> really, to I, did, I know, I'd be sarcastic and say I didn't know that but, I know right you know, well
1: I would like to because... but I
0: hear you I hear more balance to be honest with you the the difference between now and a few years ago or even a year ago feels like um, tr- <laughs> tremendous that you have more balance oh absolutely
1: work. and i've had to because my health has declined and i have health issues now that i'm still dealing with but being better with dealing with them mm-hmm. um i definitely had to cut a lot of hours out it's been very hard i've actually been asked to go on disability but i struggle with that um because in my belief unless i can't get out of bed i don't feel like i should be on disability and people will disagree with that but that's just my my belief. I just.
0: that That's something only you can come to terms with un- unless they're, un- unless you're avoiding dealing with s- some serious issue that, that needs to be addressed. And, yeah, absolutely. And that's different. Yeah, you know? absolutely
1: different. So, yeah, um, that's a big goal is moving out of Utah, or I shouldn't say Utah even. Salt Lake, for me, would be really good because of my lung disease, like getting out oh. of this little bowl. Um, <laughs> so St. George is where I'd like to do my next store, and I would love to because, the inversion's not as bad down there. No. Definitely and, not. And it's still close to home because I really don't want to leave my family. But it's close enough to drive back and forth and stuff. So that's one of my big goals right now. And wow. I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah. That's, like, probably my biggest goal. I'm trying to think of what else I was... Because I actually thought about this the other day. No, I don't know what i That's the biggest one for now. Okay. <laughs> so. Okay. All right.
0: And And... You know, I mean, within that goal, there's, I mean, besides opening a new store, there's your health is in that goal, and so that you know, being able to take care of yourself and and wanting to be in a healthier healthier place where the air's cleaner. I have those same thoughts, by the way. So,
1: <laughs> and I'm glad you just said that because that is the other thing and my, for my goals is my health actually because I've I've had some, I can't even really tell you what they have been. I was told they were vessel strokes throughout this year. Well, I right. supposedly have had three. I'm not sure, but I've been working on that and getting my goal for my future is to get into the Mayo Clinic or the U of U or like some kind of team of doctors. Cause I really need to figure out kind of what's going on there. I feel fine as of like, like I don't feel ill every day or whatever. And like when I'm having mm-hmm. these strokes or seizures or whatever they have been, mm-hmm. I don't feel anything like coming on. So I'm, I'm getting in the goal of like getting on top of that, like getting into some specialists and figuring out what's going on.
0: Hmm. All right. it It is an amazing story. Um, and that you continue to struggle with health issues that there are no quick answers for. Um, and, and you handle that and, and move through it f- very well.
1: Well, thank you. Under the circumstances. <laughs> I try to.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, last question. Um, I, I mentioned I was going to ask you this uh, because I, I, I ask all my guests about music. In fact, we even did on the roundtable last week about music that they um, that was important for them over this past year, the year of COVID, as we say. You know, we're in year two, right? Um, but in your life, and uh, any music or musician or any songs that stand out to you that have have been imp- important and or have value you value in a way that have certain meaning. Yes. For you.
1: Yeah, it's called Glass Animals, and it's called Heat Waves.
0: The the band's called Glass Animals?
1: Yeah, and it's called Heat Waves. Tell
0: me about the song.
1: Uh, It's... uh, I don't even know... Honestly, I couldn't tell you exactly what he's talking about. Something I get out of it is just like... There can be so much going on around you... And it's okay to just be still, kind of. Like, those aren't the exact words, but like, that's kind of what I take out of it. Like, it's okay to just be in one place. You don't have to be everywhere. If that makes sense, I don't know. Like I said, it, the words are obviously different, but it's just very, it's a very calming song to me. And it's just very, and it has like a good beat, and it's just, <laughs> I've literally had it on repeat for like two weeks. <laughs> Isn't that a, It's yeah. funny. I just, I've, and it's not even actual music I would usually listen to. I'm more of a, like, like, country, hip-hop-ish, alternative music. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of out there, and it's not really my...
0: Your normal. Uh, yeah,
1: it wouldn't be my normal. But I literally love this song, yeah. and I love... Their whole album's good, but I really like that song. I think it's really good, so...
0: It, it resonates with you. It does. And anything else over the years that uh, has been meaningful or impactful in your life? Or?
1: Music-wise,
0: yeah. Um, any particular artist that stands out?
1: Any country music. I don't. I grew up on country, and I know a lot of people disagree with me and <laughs> do not like country, and I know that. But for some reason, for me, it's just a very calming. It's very calming, like uh, beat to it to mm-hmm. me. For cause, j- like, and all of it sounds the same mostly, anyways. But it's just very because I was raised on it, it. Just reminds me of like my childhood I guess mm-hmm. and that like country part of me you know because I was raised on a farm practically so to me it's just that very outdoorsy part of me that I love and I just love and I would say any artist Jason Aldean you know Luke Combs all of them okay. I think they're great okay okay
0: so, I, I don't know if this is what you meant to say, but are you you a little bit of country girl? Is that what you're saying?
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I
0: don't just mean musically.
1: No, yeah. No, country girl around hunting, yeah. fishing, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. One of my jobs growing up, like in my teenage years, was throwing hay and bailing it and doing all that stuff. I love that. So, it's I can a good see workout.
0: It. I can see it. All right, Marty. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming out today and, and telling sharing your story and your journey with us.
1: Well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate
0: it. Uh, We will end here, and we'll go out as we usually do with little Joan Osborne. Talk to you soon. Bye.